Today we read from 2 Corinthians 13, 5 to 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Thanks, David. Good morning. The only new car that Jeannie and I ever bought together was in the 80s. We were encouraged to buy a particular car that was a fairly new model. It was a Dodge Aries station wagon. Anybody else own a K car? A few of you out there, you know what I'm talking about. The car looked great. It ran great. But over time, we discovered that it wasn't so great. It had a five-year, 50,000-mile warranty. I thought, wow, you know, that's really good. It must be well-made to give that kind of warranty. Well, at 50,200 miles, the engine blew. It was dead by 100,000 miles, ready for the junkyard. Did I know I was buying a lemon? (laughs) No. Looking at it? But you couldn't tell. Only time could tell. Only time would reveal what really was inside that car. Some medical conditions are that way as well. Some you can do tests and find out right away if somebody has a particular diagnosis, but others you can only tell over time as you wait for symptoms to develop. Some things just take time. Time will tell. Today we wrap up the book of 2 Corinthians. It's been quite a journey over this year. What a wonderful book about Christ in us and what it means to really have his life lived through us and the glory of that and the wonder of that. It's been a challenging, terrific book. But as Paul ends the book, he looks back on all the challenges they've had and all the struggles in the church in Corinth. And he challenges them in this last section to examine themselves. Are they really in the faith? Are they really, truly walking with Jesus? 
Do they really have the Holy Spirit? When I was an undergrad, I met with my advisor, and he was one of the foremost scholars in Reformation history, kind of intimidating in some ways, brilliant man. And we sat down for the first time, and I'm a little intimidated. We're talking. He's asking me some questions about my life, and he finally says, Oh, you have the bug. I'm thinking, what is he talking about? You know, the bug. And I'm thinking, I have no idea what you're saying. Finally, he says, you know, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> haven't heard that term before. <laughs> Turns out he was an ordained Lutheran minister, and he was saying, yeah, the Holy Spirit, you've got the Holy Spirit in you. Well, Paul is trying to give us some, a challenge here as to whether the bug, the Holy Spirit, is really in us. How do you know that you're in the faith? How do you know that you're truly a believer, that you've got the bug? You know, most of us, we've, we've kind of been taught, here's how you have assurance for your faith. If you can look back and if you've prayed a prayer, or if you go to church regularly, or you read your Bible, or you pray to God, then those are evidences that you are in the faith. But it's interesting that as Paul challenges these Corinthians to consider whether they are truly in the faith, he doesn't mention any of those things. In fact, what he mentions are things that are evidence that God is in you, changing you, working in your life over time. You see, you really can't just take a blood test and say, oh yeah, you're a believer. But if Christ is in you, if that's really true, then you are a new creation, and that new creation will show up over time. That's part of Paul's message today. So today, I challenge you. I challenge you to examine yourself. I don't think Scripture wants us to be morbid about always wondering, am I in the faith? Am I in the faith? Do I really know Jesus? And try to analyze that and maybe try to receive Him again. Some people live that way. That is not what He wants us to do. There are very few places in Scripture where we are challenged to really consider if we're in the faith or not. But this is one of them. So today, I challenge you, as we go through this passage, to consider, am I really in the faith? Because the worst thing that could happen is for you to think you're a believer, to think you have the bug, and not know Jesus at all. Because as Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I will say, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage together, reveal the reality of our spiritual state. May your spirit make clear where we are with you so we can deal with that reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are the evidences that Paul gives so we can know that we are truly in the faith? What should we be looking for over time? What should develop in our lives over time? I think there's three main questions I see in this passage that we are to ask ourselves. Number one, is Christ my strength? Is Christ my strength? 
Let me read those first four verses of chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul is saying, I'm coming again. He's already sent four letters, as we talked about last week. He's had two visits, and he's saying, I'm coming again, and I want things to be okay between us, but if I have to be tough when I come, I will be. I don't want to be that way, but I will be if I need to. And then he refers to some criticism that had been floating around that is Christ really in you? Do you really speak Christ's words, Paul? And he says, let me give you some proof that what I speak is from Christ. That word proof is very interesting. It's, it's the Greek word dakime. Dakime. It means to test something, to examine something carefully to see if it's genuine or not. It was used of checking out gold to see if it was real gold. And gold would be put through the fire. And only the real precious metals could survive the high temperatures. So if it was real gold, it would survive the temperature and it would be marked dakime, approved. Or it would be tested by acid, nitric acid, the acid tests. Only genuine gold will not be dissolved by nitric acid. So Paul says, you're looking for proof. Here is my proof that Christ is in me. What does he give? He says, just as Jesus was weak in his humanity, but lives by the power of God. So we are weak, but live by the power of God in us. His resurrection power is evident in me, Paul says. God shows his power through our weakness, as he's been talking about in the last couple chapters. And I think that's an encouragement to us to look at whether Christ is more and more becoming our strength. That's an evidence that Christ is in us, that we are truly genuine, that we are his. Are you so aware of your own weakness that you look for him to live his life through you? Are you learning to trust in his strength, not your own? Are you seeing him do things in you that you could never do yourself? Therefore, you know that God is in you and he's beginning to live his life through you. You're a new creation. As I think about my own life, as a young believer, I, I didn't know how to depend on Christ and everything I did was in my own strength. And I remember dealing with areas of sin in my life, thought patterns, certain behaviors, addictive behaviors, things that I was struggling with and I would grit my teeth and work really hard and think, I've got to change these, I've got to change these, I've got to change these. And they never changed. And finally, when I came to a place of saying, I can't do this anymore, I, you have to change me. It has to be your power in me to change me. And I saw God begin to work in my life and change me that it gave me great encouragement that he was in me. 
Or maybe there's ways in which you've been serving God and you put a lot of energy and effort into it, but it's all you. But maybe over time you've learned that serving God really has to be Him in you and you're learning to say, Lord, you need to do this through me. Love this person through me. You do it, Lord. I will obey. I will follow you, but it's got to be you because I'm weak and only you can accomplish in me what needs to happen. So the challenge, I think, for us, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Or is the Christian life really about what I'm doing for God? The effort I make to be a good Christian, and that's where it ends. Living by rules and formulas that we keep on our own strength. We need to examine ourselves. Is Christ my strength? If you're not seeing God work in you and change you and His power evident in you beyond your ability and you're recognizing your weakness and that it's God in you, I think it's worth questioning, is Christ really, really in me? And that goes on to the second question, is Christ in me? That's the second major question I see in this passage as Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. He used two words there, examine yourself, test yourself. The first word, examine yourself, is the word that's used of Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan came and tested him. Satan tested him to find out if he was the real thing. (laughs) And then the second word, to test yourself, is the word from the same root, dakame, that we talked about earlier. It means to find out if you're genuine. Check to see if you're genuinely in the faith. So Paul's really using strong words here to say you really need to figure out if you're in the faith and look for the evidences whether you're in the faith. And uh, let me just make a note here. He doesn't say test the person sitting next to you. Test those other people around. See if they're really in the faith. No, he says, test yourselves. These are evidences that we are to use on ourselves to check our own hearts. Jeannie and I bought a peach tree. And at least they told us it was a peach tree. Uh, There weren't any peaches on it when we bought it, so how would we know? We bought it, planted it in the backyard, watered it, waited to see what would come out of this tree. And guess what? Peaches showed up. But there's no way we could really tell until the fruit began to develop. And that's just like you and me. We can say we're in the faith, but but it's fruit that we look for. And that's where Paul goes now. He says, you've got to look for fruit Peachness was in the tree, but it didn't come out until it began to bear fruit. If Christ is in us, he will begin to come out. It will happen. (laughs) You can't stop it if Christ is in you. If you're truly a Christ one, a Christian, there will be certain fruit that will show up over time. If it doesn't, then maybe you don't have peachness in you, (laughs) Christ in you. Interesting the way Jesus puts it in Matthew. He's so direct. I referred to the passage earlier, but let me expand on it. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, he says, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but that is a very sobering passage. Because he's saying that you can say certain words, Lord, Lord, you're my Lord. And you can actually do acts of ministry and never know Jesus. Amazing acts of ministry and never know Jesus. Activity for God, even impressive activity, is not proof that Jesus is in you. You shall know them by their fruits. So what are these fruits that he refers to in this passage? Well, the first is a a changed Changed lifestyle, changed actions. Verse 7, he says this, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Now clearly it's not actions doing, not doing wrong and doing right that saves us, right? But it is evidence that Christ has saved you and is bearing fruit in you. So he says, not doing wrong and doing right, what is right. The word for right there is the word kalos. It's a wonderful word. It's translated beauty often. It's something praiseworthy in line with God's character and his universe. That your actions are less and less being the old man and more and more the new person in Christ, that you are learning to put off the old and you are learning to put on the life of Christ and begin to bear his life in how you live. You see, if he is really in you, he will draw you to put off the flesh, gossip, selfishness, wickedness, anger, sexual sins, control of others, independence from God. If he's really in you, he will lead you to push those away, to take those off, and to put on Christ, the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control having a character that's becoming more and more in line with Jesus. I think what Paul's getting at here is you cannot say, I accepted Christ and keep living the same old way. If Christ is in you, you will, over time, put off the old ways of living and the old ways of controlling and the old ways of demanding that things go your way and you'll more and more submit to Christ and walk in that new life, the fruit of the Spirit, that he's called us to. So first, that your lifestyle needs to change. Secondly, your thinking should change. Verse 8, where he says, 
For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. See, if Christ is in you, you become more and more committed to truth. Less and less are you the ruler of your own universe, and you decide what's right or wrong. But more and more, you're learning to submit to what Jesus tells you in the Scriptures, how he's revealed his own heart, and you're learning to be more and more committed to the truth, to do it and to live it out and believe it, even when it's difficult. You're more and more submissive to God's truth as revealed in the Bible. If you continue to kind of run your own life and decide for yourself what's right and wrong, then you have to question, is Christ really in me? Third is, is Christ beginning to heal those areas of your life, the old wounds that have held you back? For he says this in verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. That word restoration is a word that was used to mend nets or to fix, set a broken bone. It's a healing of something that's been damaged. Healing the old wounds to begin to make whole and restore to its proper use. You see, when Christ is in you, He begins to free you from the things that abound you, the old baggage that you grew up with living in a broken and fallen world, and begins to heal those. Not that the wounds are completely gone or healed, but, but you begin to experience more and more freedom from those things and a freedom to not live self-centeredly or self-protectively, but to live giving your life away. If that's true of you, then that's evidence that Christ is in you, that there's restoration going on, that His life is changing you. And then finally, the fourth fruit I see in this passage is, are you moving from self-centeredness to other-centeredness? Verse 10, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. Authority for what? For building up and not tearing down. Paul says, my whole purpose in coming, it's not about me, it's about building you up. That's evidence of Christ in someone's heart that more and more your orientation is, Jesus is taking care of me, I'm trusting Him with my life, He's my all in all, and so I'm freed up to give my life away for others, to build them up, to serve them. Are you learning to give yourself away for the kingdom? Are you learning to say, Lord, love this person through me and in his strength, care for others more than yourself? That's simply the gospel being lived out. That's Christ expressing his life through you. And if Christ is in you, that will be more and more over time evident in your life. You see, all these things are just fruit. They're just evidence that Christ is in you. They don't make you become a Christian. They don't save you, but they're just simply the fruit that occurs when there's new life in you, when there's peachness in you, when there's Christ in you. It begins to bear fruit in your life. The last evidence I see, the last question I think that he wants us to ask is this, is Christ flowing out from me? We've looked at, is Christ my strength? Am I learning to depend on Him? Is Christ in me? And there's fruit that results from that. And finally, is Christ flowing out from me? He says this, finally, brothers, rejoice. He's ending the whole book on this 
last couple of verses, and he says, Rejoice. One of the greatest commands and most common commands in the Scripture. You see, rejoicing is a sign of Christ in you. You're, you're trusting in His love in the midst of a crazy life. Now, we're not talking about kind of slapping this fake smile on your face and saying, yeah, everything's great. No, real joy, rejoicing means in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle, you have a confidence that He is with you. And so you have a deeper joy knowing that this is not all there is and He's strengthening you for the suffering you're going through, but the real hope is in heaven and I'm secure in that. That's evidence if you have that kind of hope growing in you and that kind of joy in your heart that he is in you and he's flowing out from you. The French Jesuit priest, Tillard de Chardin, wrote, Joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. Not just happiness, but joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. It's an evidence that he is in you. And then he gives five commands. Aim for restoration. That same word as before. The mending of a broken bone. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Notice that these are all relational commands. He says if Christ is really in you, then Christ will flow out from you to others. That you will... Seek to mend relationships that are hurting. You will seek to care for those around you who need comfort. You will seek to enter people's lives and agree with them where you can. Like that famous quote that we do not know who actually said it. No one really does. It's been attributed to all kinds of people, including Augustine, but it's very famous. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. In the very core of the faith, yes, there must be unity. But in everything else that we might disagree on, let there be liberty and freedom. But in everything, let there be love in how we relate to one another. But he's talking about our relationships with one another. Are we committed to peace? Are we committed to work through things? Are we committed to mending relationships and comforting those who are hurting. That's evidence that Christ is in you, that you're letting go of living for yourself and more and more seeking to bring wholeness in the body of Christ. Your energy is going there. Do you see God flowing through you? That's what Paul wants us to look at. Loving others. Or you're basically selfish and self-centered as you've always been. If that's the case, then we should fear that perhaps we don't really know him. The last command he gives is in verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now let me say, I think we disobey this command an awful lot in this church. I don't see people greeting one another with a holy kiss very often. What's he saying here? Well, you know, of course, it's a Middle Eastern culture. Like today, when you go to the Middle East and you have a formal greeting of someone, they kiss on both cheeks. But, and if you're just hanging around with, you know, casual friends or whatever, you don't usually greet them that way. But someone who's really close, an intimate friend or family, you greet with a kiss on each cheek. 
I think what Paul's saying here is, are you treating one another as intimate family in the body of Christ? Are you doing what you can to welcome people in and to say, hey, you and I are family. We are family in Christ. Is Christ flowing out from me to you? And we're doing what we can to show people that we are committed to them. They are family. Now, we don't do holy kisses a whole lot around here. Maybe the closest thing is a holy hug. (laughs) It's a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of commitment to one another. Or maybe you can do a holy handshake uh, if you do it right. You know, too often handshakes are kind of just something we do and don't mean anything. But I guess what he's talking about is he's saying, are you looking that person in the eye and saying, I'm committed to you. You are family. Do we do that with one another? Do we greet one another in a way where we know, wow, I belong here? Do you help one another know that you belong here and that they belong here? The end of the book, I didn't have David read this, but the very end of the whole book of Second Corinthians is this verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Marvelous verse. It's one of the clearest Trinitarian formulas in the Bible. Perhaps the other most clear one is Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, here you see the Trinitarian formula, the three. Let me say a few words about Trinity because I think it's vital we understand some things about that. The Trinity, the word doesn't occur in the scriptures. That's absolutely true. It was first used by Theophilus of Antioch around 180 AD to try to describe who God is. It was later picked up by the church in the church councils as they tried to define who is this God that we love and serve as revealed in the scriptures. It's a word used to describe their understanding of God as revealed here in the Bible. It's a good fit for passages like this because God is three in one. Three persons, revealed persons in one who love one another and created us out of that. Three pers- one God, three persons. What's the greatest visual of that to help us understand that? You know, people have tried all kinds of visuals. Well, God's like an egg. You know, he's shell, he's white, he's the yolk, he's all three. I'm not so sure about that. He's like water, which water can exist in three states at one point. It can be a vapor, it can be a liquid, and it can be the right temperature under the right conditions. It can be a solid as well, all three, but it's one thing, it's water. Perhaps, you know, the scripture actually gives us a visual So this is the image I want you to use when you think about the Trinity. It's marriage. It's marriage. Remember when God created Adam and Eve, he said, let us, us, Trinity, make man in our image, male and female, he created them. And then he goes on in chapter 2 of Genesis to show what that is by creating marriage. See, there's something amazing about marriage is two different genders, and it must be two different genders, 
come together, each carrying the image of God, but coming together and learning to love one another and become one, one, that reflects the actual image of God, the character of God, the Trinity nature of God. And as a friend came up in between service and was saying, yeah, and you know what's interesting is each marriage, those two individuals, they come together, create their own kind of personality. It's like a third entity almost. It's like the Trinity. Very interesting. So why does Paul end this amazing book with the mention of the Trinity? Because he wants to say, after all this stuff we've been through and all the hassles and all the struggles you're having... Here's what I want you to remember more than anything else. All of God is available for all that you need. It's essentially what he's saying here. All of God is available for all that you need. God's grace, which is most clearly given in Jesus, is available to you. His resources for living life. God's love is available to you as the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross. God's love is revealed to you and available to you. And the Holy Spirit, the gift of fellowship with God himself and with one another is, comes through the Holy Spirit whom he plants in us so that we can relate directly to him and have that common life with one another. The fellowship of the Spirit is available to you. So, He ends with this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All that God is is available to you. So rejoice, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard passage, but I pray we would take an honest look at our own hearts, whether you are really in us bearing fruit. And for those here who were unsure, may they turn to you to truly surrender and give their lives to you so that your life might be planted in them. For all of us, Lord, may you be all that we need day by day. May you be our strength. May you bear fruit in our lives. May we learn to give our lives away in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.